open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Last week we covered the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We, uh, of course, cut that class a little bit short so that we could have a time of communion as it was the week of our Lord's Passion and um, Tonight, we'll get back on track with Exodus, uh, finishing Exodus chapter 13, and we'll take it from there. But as we talked about last week, the, the deliverance of Israel from the hands of their uh, taskmasters by means of the Passover was a seminal moment. It was the what we would count as sort of the beginning of what we understand to be the nation of Israel. You know, they'd gone from a, uh, an Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to 12 sons, to 12 families, to 12 tribes, and now they're on their way to becoming one nation. And the Passover is sort of the beginning of that journey. As that generation, that wilderness generation would set the stage for all of the things that are going to follow in our Old Testament timeline. So as they leave Egypt, the decision is made by the Lord to take them not the straight path, not the direct path, not just run, you know, back in these days, I know we think, well, this is 3,000, 3,500 years ago. You know, this is a long time ago, right? So we wouldn't think of, the conveniences we would have today. They couldn't get on a plane. They couldn't get, they'd have cars, trains, or buses. But there were roads as people would travel back and forth and would trade with other nations and other peoples. There were uh, different highways, different from the highways we understand, but different paths that would be followed. And if the most direct path from Egypt to Canaan would have been to gone up right up the road that went right by the Mediterranean Sea. If you ever see, if you see this on a map, you look at the north part of Egypt, you look at the south part of Canaan, and you can kind of draw a line, a little half circle, take them straight through. But the Lord does not take them that way because along that road, that land, that road went through the land of a people called the Philistines. Now, any good kid who went to Sunday school or children's church, knows all about the Philistines, right? Goliath was a Philistine, right? They, these, these are your biblical uh, boogeymen, your bad guys. These are, these are the guys that, uh, knowing how fragile Israel's faith was at that time, the Lord did not want to put them through the stress of having to uh, go immediately from being delivered from bondage to fighting a major war against one of the more powerful peoples of that time. So instead of going sort of to the northeast, God sends Israel a little bit more to the southeast, sends them in the direction of the northern reaches of the Red Sea. Uh, And this is kind of a more wild area, more wilderness area, not as many resources, no Walmarts, no no McDonald's, no, no, uh, no Costco's. Uh, out here in the wilderness, they're really going to have to, to trust the Lord. And um, you can see, you know, you can kind of sit there and say, now wait a minute, the Lord just did this great Passover thing. Surely he could have taken care of the Philistines. Well, yes, he certainly could have taken care of the Philistines, but his, his goal at this point is to, uh, to turn these, and it's so hard for us to understand what it would be like to live for so many generations under the yoke of bondage. Uh, you know, certainly we have people today, people in this uh, country, people in this church that are four or five generations descended from people who were slaves. And so we can maybe understand a little bit, but it's very difficult to really comprehend what it meant that for generations, 
Somebody else made all the decisions for you. Somebody else told you what time to wake up, what time to go to sleep, what job to do, how long to do that job, what you would get in exchange. I mean, there was just have no freedom. And so for Israel to be able to uh, become a uh, sort of a self-sustaining nation, they had to learn a lot of things, a lot of things that we take for granted. Uh, how to govern themselves, how to organize themselves, how to how to make sure that every family got fed, how to make sure how to divide up property, all of these things that they didn't have to worry about in Egypt. So the Lord takes them not into uh, the land of the Philistines, but takes them to uh, on a different path, a path that leads to a place called Sinai. I mean, if you look again, some of you have those wonderful maps in the back of your Bibles. And if you kind of look on that map that shows Egypt and Canaan, and you see the Red Sea sticking up at the very tip of the northern end of the Red Sea, are those two little uh, they kind of look like well, Easter season, right? So they kind of look like rabbit ears, right? Although the one on the left is the Gulf of Suez, which you probably recognize today as the uh, from the from the Suez Canal, which is where they built the canal to connect the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean Sea. The one on the right is from a place is is called the Gulf of Aqaba or Aqaba. Uh, and that little shark tooth in between that little triangle piece of land, that is the Sinai Peninsula. That is where Mount Sinai is. That is where Moses met the Lord. And that is where the Lord told Moses to bring the people. So they're not going directly to Canaan first. They're going towards Sinai or the Sinai Peninsula, because that is where the Lord told Moses that he would meet with all of the people after he had set them free. And then we see the message here, or the mention here, that as they were leaving, they remembered the promise that they had been asked to make, and they took the bones of Joseph with them. And that sort of completes the Joseph circle, right? Joseph was the first of the Hebrews, to become a permanent resident of the land of Egypt. And then, of course, he's the last of them, or he, he leads with the last of them as they leave the land of Egypt, or at least his bones do. And it does tell us an interesting little cultural detail that some of you might miss. I'm sure many of you are aware of the most famous thing about how the Egyptians deal with the dead, right? How do the Egyptians deal with the dead? They mummify them, right? You've all seen the mummy. <laughs> well, that, the mummy is a you know is a different story, but uh, the Egyptian custom was to embalm the bodies and mummify them and preserve the flesh. But what are we told? We are told that all that was left of Joseph was his bones, and that is what we would what later Jews would develop that custom of leaving the body buried until all the flesh had uh, turned back into dust, and then gathering the bones together and putting them in boxes. Uh, I think the, the word for them is ossuaries or ossuaries, and that would be the Jewish custom of how they took care of their dead. So the Egyptians were about keeping the flesh as lifelike as possible through mummification, but the Hebrews... Uh, didn't worry about the flesh. They just wanted to keep the bones together in uh, boxes. And so they took the box that had the bones of Joseph with them. And as he was the one to lead them into Egypt, now he's the one to lead them back out. Uh, and the last thing we're told there at the end of chapter 13 is this mention of something called the cloud and the pillar of fire. Now, this is going to play a more important role in future chapters, but in chapter 14, but uh, basically, uh, and interpretations kind of differ as to what the cloud and pillar of fire represent, but this is some type of manifestation of the glory of God. Um, throughout the Old Testament, and even into the New Testament, I think the day of Pentecost, what are the manifestations of the presence of God was the appearance of smoke or the appearance of fire and sometime together, right? And um, we see it in the uh, dedications of temples. 
We see it in other times in the history of Israel. And we're actually told in Exodus 14 that the cloud and the pillar of fire are connected with the angel of the Lord, the angel of God that accompanied Israel in the wilderness. All right, so moving into chapter 14. The Lord tells Moses to take the children of Israel to the edge of the wilderness and to the edge of what is in your Bible. Most of your translations will say Red Sea. Uh, I do want to point out, those of you that have Bibles with little footnotes or little indications in your Bibles of alternate readings of certain passages, you may have a footnote where it says Red Sea that tells you that one of the other possible translations of the word that's translated red is the word reed, as in the reeds that come out of the water, where there's, you know, if you're ever, you're ever out in the Everglades, you see a bunch of reeds coming out of the water. So, um, you know, we're talking about a text that's over 3,000 years old, a language that was spoken 3,500 years ago, there's going to be some differences of opinion on how to translate some of the words. Uh, and certainly the way what, you know, no fault of King James, what, he, what his people knew about the Hebrew language 400 years ago um, was impressive for how they were able to translate certain words. Uh, the, but it's also understood that we know today a little bit more about the Hebrew language than we did 400 years ago. So you may see some alternate readings. It doesn't change the story. It doesn't affect the miracle. It just makes people wonder whether it was at this place or that place. Right? As I told you, in that picture in your Bible or on your, I guess most of you now are probably using Google Maps. <laughs> if you pull up the Red Sea, you see those two little bunny ears sticking up at the top. And one of those is the Gulf of Suez, and that's where a lot of People believe Israel crossed over. And then if you go a little bit north of that, you see a region called the, the Bitter Lakes or uh, the, the Lakes of Bitterness or whatever. forget how, how it's translated. And that's a little bit north of that. And that's where some other people think Israel crossed over. But the main thing is that they crossed over, right? So uh, the Red Sea and its tributaries like Suez, that's what separates the main body of Egypt on the west side from the Sinai Peninsula on the east side. Now, the Sinai Peninsula was up until, uh, or, or it was at this time, was still more or less um, under the authority of the kings of Egypt, but it's, it was kind of like a Wild West show out there. <laughs> there were roving bands of tribes and things. We'll read about one of them, Amalek, in, in a little bit. So uh, that place there at the tip of the Red Sea was about as far as Egypt could reasonably be expected to have tight, tight controls over the lands. And indeed, we see here the story of how even after the events of the night of the Passover, even after the death of the firstborns, once again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And once again... He decides that he is going to pursue Israel and return them to Egypt and return them to bondage. Now, if you kind of put yourself in the mind of Pharaoh here, after all that they've experienced, after all that they've lost, think of all those plagues, the water the turning into blood, the destruction of crops, the destruction of livestock. Considering what Egypt was taking with them in terms of wealth, uh, this may have been simply a matter in Pharaoh's mind of economic survival, right? Not only was the, the main body of their workforce leaving, but a lot of the wealth of the country was leaving with them. And so, you know, we, we, worry, you know, we worry all the time about recessions and depressions and economic upheaval. But just imagine if, you know, 25% of the workforce today in, in the farms and in the dairies and on the ranches with the cows and the sheep and all of that, what if they just all left? You know? 
Who, who's who's gonna where, where's my who's gonna who's gonna send me my prime rib, right, Raj? Who's gonna, where's where's my corn gonna come from? So, uh, whatever motivated Pharaoh, he comes after them, and we want to read these verses that have given such strength and comfort to people for so many generations. In chapter fourteen, it says in Mo, in verse thirteen, it says, "And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid." Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So if you think about what's happening here, as they're crossing through this wilderness area, they come to the shores of the sea. They don't have boats. It's too wide to build a bridge. Either side of them are wall, are, are uh, cliffs and, and, and mountains. They can't go north. They can't go south. They can't go east. And what's behind them in the west is the army of Pharaoh. So you can, uh, you can imagine the state of mind the Hebrews were in at this point and the concern that they had that they had just been basically set up to be brought out into the wilderness, they would just be recaptured or killed or re-enslaved. And so they go to Moses. They're upset. Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, don't worry. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. And he tells Moses to take the rod. Remember that rod that was given to him when he first met the Lord at the burning bush? Take that rod, stretch it out over the sea, and as soon as he stretched it out over the sea, a wind came up and began to push the sea or divide the sea or part the sea so that they had a path of dry land to pass through with water on, on either side. And it says in the text that it took all night to get them across the sea. I know when you see it in the movie, it's like two minutes, right? When you see it in the movies, they jump in, they run across, and they jump out. But, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people walking, pushing carts, small children, old men, old women, um, donkeys. You know, every once in a while, a donkey just decides he doesn't want to go anymore. So this was an all-night operation. They crossed not only through the water on dry land, but they did it in the dark <laughs> with only the pillar of fire to go before them. So it's, a, it's an incredible scene. It's a miracle of miracles. It's probably, I don't think I have to tell you, it's the defining miracle of the Jewish people. Uh, you know, for all the things that God did with them, the one thing that comes up more than any other in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and even among the Jewish congregations of today is the crossing of the Red Sea on dry land. And, of course, in the New Testament, uh, this is seen as a type of baptism, right? So in the New Testament, the New Testament writers speak of this event as the baptism of Israel into that covenant with God. And, uh, of course, we know today that baptism signifies the beginning of a new life, of, of being born again, basically. So... Uh, even though it took all night for them to cross, uh, once the pillar of fire was lifted and Pharaoh was able to pursue them, uh, he and his, his armies went right in after them. And of course, once Israel was across, Moses put his arms down and the seas came back together and drowned the Egyptian army. Do you have any thoughts or questions or concerns on the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, yes, Pastor. I believe, um, yes, that was a great miracle, but I think that another miracle that I don't think the think the King James um, or other versions might be quite um, this, is that um, I also believe that the landmass itself, um, um, I think one, Translation I think I read some times ago. I don't remember exactly the word they used. But the, the land itself 
must have um, been rearranged by God for like a uh, like a highway for them to you know go across the um, where the water was at first. Because water tends to push away objects, and you sort of have an even, would have an even um, um, uh, pathway to walk or, or to ride across. So I believe that God had also created, or to say, like a highway for them to go right across. Instead of having, you know, having those hot holes or the holes in the ground where the water um, was previously um, running. And if you understand what I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a that, that's really a that's really a good point because, and we all know that, you know, underneath all that water out there in the oceans is land. <laughs> It's all land. It's just a lot of it. Seventy percent of it is covered by water these days. But it's all land. But as far as the contours, the um, the the level of sediment, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this uh, area of Egypt uh, would be kind of like our our marshlands here in the United States, places like the Everglades, where you have you have a lot in the in the water and you have a lot under the water that's kind of spongy and muddy and you can get stuck, you can get sucked down. So certainly that wind that came through and part of the water um, also, uh, you know, was able to sort of scour a path through the land, make their passing um, uh, easier, make it straighter. Uh, and of course, we know. And I don't know if you ever watched those programs. Uh, there's one on. I don't know if it's National Geographic or if it's History Channel, but it's one where they drain the oceans and they, they do these these big 3D renderings of what it would look like in San Francisco Bay or what it would look like around the Caribbean islands if you just took all the water away. And it's it's a mess. <laughs> it's it's full of uh, all kinds of things down there. So that's a good point that the Lord made a path through the sea uh, on dry land, on level land, whether he did it by uh, raising the land up, whether he did it by uh, straightening out the crooked paths, filling in the potholes. Uh, they were able to pass fairly quickly for what type of operation this was. I mean, if you just think about the, the logistics, it's not just the people. It's their possessions. It's their livestock, their herds. It's, it's everything. And it's all got to get across, and it's all got to get across in one night. Right? They got one night to do this. And I don't know how people do the math on this stuff, but that to me, there are miracles within miracles. Right? We think of one big miracle, but when you start to break it down, there are different elements that are in themselves miraculous, right? So we think of this east wind. You know, where did it come from? We think of the waters piling up instead of just spilling over onto the land. We think of the path being straight and, and solid and stable. So it's, it's the miracles within the miracles within the miracles. One thing we can be sure of is that any miracle of God is going to think of everything. It's, it's going to cover all of the potential things that need to be accomplished for the miracle to take place. Well, chapter 15, uh, I think, is one of the more interesting chapters in the book of Exodus. It records two songs the Song of Moses and the Song of Miriam. The Song of Moses is a song of praise and uh, a way of commemorating. Now, we don't know if Moses was writing anything down this time, at this time yet. We don't know when Moses started recording 
the events down that had been happening. But one of the ways that uh, people have preserved their history and preserved their past is by putting it to either poetry or to music. And this is the first example of it in the Bible. So we went, you know, go through the whole book of Genesis and we read there about men calling on the name of the Lord. We read there about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob building altars. We read about the giving of sacrifices. But this is the first real indication of a psalm or song of praise that was preserved, that was passed on to be sung, to be continued to sung. Now, in fact, probably the most interesting thing about the Song of Moses is it's actually mentioned in the last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation says that those who are in heaven are singing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. So that's, a, that's kind of a, you know, we, we think uh, Amazing Grace has been around for a long time, right? Yeah. You think, what's an old song? Well, Amazing Grace, that's been around for 100 years. This song has been around for over 3,000 years and apparently is going to continue to be sung throughout all of eternity. So that's an impressive song. And, and in, through this music, through this song, through this praise, the, the victory of the Lord and the victory of the Lord's people over the forces of darkness, the forces of the enemy, is preserved, and it's, it's a way of commemorating uh, a great and significant event. Uh, and we still do some of that a little bit today, not as much as we did in times past, but for the United States, our song of Moses might be something like Yankee Doodle Dandy or, or the Battle Hymn of the Republic or something, something like that. But um, uh, for the nation of Israel... The Song of Moses, this is their Independence Day song. This is their, uh, who's the guy that, uh, is it Susa? Is that the guy that uh, uh, John Susa, John Philip Susa or something like that, that does the, um, the orchestras on Independence Day, that does the big music programs on, I don't, I don't know if it's him or the War of 1812 Overture or whatever it is, but this is the magnum opus. This is Beethoven and Bach and all of them combined into one. As Moses sings of the triumph, it begins with, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Uh, a, you know, I don't think we've improved on that kind of opening to a song in 3,000 years. I think, I think that covers it pretty good. We can, we can say it in different ways, but it's a tremendous way of uh, testifying not only to the present generation, but to the generations that would come after. And then we see something equally important at the, towards the end of the chapter, and that is the mention of the song of Miriam. And here we see that Miriam is called the prophetess. And that's the first appearance of that word. And the idea of a female prophet uh, uh, is, again, very ancient. This goes back, these are origin stories. These are, these are the beginnings of our faith, the beginnings of God's testimony to humanity. And... Uh, this becomes the first uh, contribution of, uh, of a female prophet to the Holy Scripture because her words are preserved as well. So uh, all of this testifies to the importance and significance of worship and praise in preserving the deeds of the Lord. And uh, I know today we're a different culture, we're a different way, We've got iPhones and we've got uh, Spotify's and we've got podcasts and we've got, we can download as much music as we want and play whatever songs we want. But for generations, you know, people had to remember 
what the Lord did in song. And that was how they got their education in the Lord. That's how they got their knowledge of the Lord. Uh, that's how they got their theology. Never underestimate the power of worship, of praise worship and, uh, and, and praise music in forming the theology of people. Uh, you know, 99% of the people in the world don't go to Bible college. Uh, they learn what they learn through the preaching of the Word, but they also learn what they learn through the ministry of music and of song. And, and so that's why it's so important that songs be not just sounding good and catchy and easy to listen to and easy to sing, but also that what they say have real theological weight and theological value because uh, people will forget a sermon within 10 minutes, but they might go all day singing the songs uh, or singing one of the songs that they heard in church that day. And I just, to, to see it as part of the fabric of the formation of Israel, how early in their history as a nation that these psalms and these musical uh, expressions would become part of their culture and part of how they uh, began to pass on to their children and their children's children the great things that the Lord had done. All right. Well, at the end of chapter 15, we have kind of a sad story. <laughs> after such great deliverance, after such a miracle, you would expect that the children of Israel would never complain again. You would be wrong. Because they, <laughs> no sooner have they seen the last of Egypt, that they begin to complain about the wilderness where they are. And uh, uh, the first complaint that they give is that the waters that they have available to them are not able to be, uh, uh, are not drinkable. They, they're, they're bitter waters. And so, again, another miraculous event where Moses is commanded to cut down some branches from a tree and throw them into the lakes or into the, the places where the water is to make the water drinkable. And really what's significant about this story, besides the recognition of the cycle of complaint and miracle that we will see continuously in the wilderness journeys, is the mention here at the end of chapter 15. I want to read the verse to you, the verse that many of you probably heard many times, and maybe you just didn't know you just didn't know what the context was. But it says, There he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that heals you. And that is actually a compound name. What he actually says there is I am Yahweh Rafika, or we would translate it in English today, I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord, your healer. So if you've ever heard that name, that title ascribed to God, have you ever heard that phrase, the Lord that healeth thee, or the Lord that heals you? This is the passage of Scripture from which it comes. And notice the context. It does not come necessarily in the midst of a plague uh, of sickness, but actually in a provision of what is needed for them to survive, for them to for them to uh, have the resources and the, the, the sustenance that they need to get through their journey. The healing here doesn't just apply to disease, but it really applies to any and all circumstances of life that are adverse or that are, that are obstacles to following the path that the Lord is taking us down. And so after this event, 
They come to an oasis at Elam, and there they find 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. And you will probably, those numbers will probably ring a bell. The numbers 12 and the numbers 70 will be uh, numbers that will come up time and time and time again in the Scriptures. Do I have any comments or questions on the end of chapter 50? Um, Bishop, yes. In okay. regards to verse 26, could we in this dispensation relate to that verse 26 where it says, I will put none of these None of the diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Does I that believe... Refer... To... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I, uh, finish your question. Yeah, does that relate to the born-again believers today? How do we apply that to ourselves? Is there relevance? Well... Let's, let's talk about the original context first, and then we'll see if we can bring it forward to today. One of, the, one of the many things we have to understand about these Old Testament covenant promises, and this is not the only one that people wonder about, if whether it's something that can be transferred into the new covenant. And we certainly uh, want to make sure that we understand everything that's involved before we we make the decision whether we can do that or not. This was a conditional promise. What is the condition? The condition is heed the voice of the Lord, do what is right in His sight, give ear to all of His commandments, and keep all of His statutes. So, are those conditions that are associated with the promise still binding on whether the promise can be, for lack of a better term, appropriated by modern-day Christians? And I would say no, but yes. And I think you probably knew that was going to be the answer. In the sense of, do we have to keep the law of Moses that was given on Sinai in order to uh, claim this promise? Uh, I would say no, because we are not obligated to keep the law that was given on Sinai. Not in that sense. However, we do know that Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. And by faith, we have been justified in the sight of God as if, as if we had kept the law for ourselves. The righteousness which is in Christ, is communicated to us. And yet I would say that our promise of healing is not tied as directly to this righteousness as it is tied to Isaiah 53 and the promise that he is the one who's carried all of our griefs and sorrows and sicknesses. So I don't have any issue with anybody who wants to call on the name of Jehovah Rapha. I don't have any problems praying for healing and in praying for healing using this scripture uh, as a, a grounds for the faith to be healed. But I don't want to convey the idea, and I hope you understand the distinction I'm making, I don't want to convey the idea that in order for us to have this promise, we have to go back to eating kosher and uh, you know, circumcision and not mixing woolen garments with linen garments and all of those other provisions. That was a provision that was made to Israel. Our healing is not based on that condition. Our healing is based in Christ. Yet, I would say that a careful study of the statutes and the commandments and the things that the Lord commanded to do and the things he commanded not to do, if we did follow them, would, in fact, promote a much healthier lifestyle than most of us are presently living, myself included. So some of this wasn't just about 
the supernatural healings that come. Some of this was about the Lord telling Israel, I'm going to give you a way of living that does not uh, or, or makes you generally a healthier people. Uh, but the context itself is not a one-to-one -one comparison. It's not a direct, uh, I'll keep these laws and I'll never get sick. That's not how it works. Christians of all levels of faith can and do get sick. And Christians of all levels of faith can and do pray for healing based on this context and others. And Christians of all levels of faith can be healed based in this context and on others. Does any of that make sense? Is there any part of that I can make clearer if needed? That makes sense, Pastor. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else want to speak to that? Yes, Pastor. Every, everything you said makes sense. But in light of um, the fact that we, we, we come to Christ and the promises are the promise that we receive is in Christ. So then um, our healing depends on our faith in Christ and also what God does desire and will for us, don't you think? Amen. I, I, I think so. I, when I look at in, in the doctrine of healing to me, it, it's one of those doctrines which I think the mistake we make with it so many times is we try to separate it out as its own thing. And I don't think yes. it's ever intended to be that way. It's intended to work hand in hand right alongside uh, all the other great doctrines of our faith, justification and regeneration, sanctification. And uh, when we think about what healing represents, we always think of it in terms of, you know, our physical infirmities, and he was wounded and suffered for those infirmities. Yet the context is always so much bigger. It's about the healing of our whole life. It's about wholeness. It's about health of mind as, as health of body. And I don't claim to, to be an expert on healing theology, but I, I'll say that in my own ministry and in my own life, um, I've seen the miraculous healing power of God at work in miraculous circumstances many times. At other times, I've seen him supply the strength to endure an infirmity or a sickness uh, and see it through. And uh, I don't always understand the distinctions to make, but I do know that healing is part of the atonement it is part of the work that Christ did for us. Uh, I don't think it's the most important thing he did, but I think it's part of it. But as far as this context is concerned, you will have some people teach today. And, you know, again, we've talked in the past about those who want to, that want to mix the law with the gospel. And they want to come up with this sort of hybrid version sort of like the Pharisees wanted to do that were part of the early church. They, they said, yes, we're going to follow Christ, but also let the Gentiles be circumcised. Or yes, the Gentiles are, 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 are genuinely saved, but they need to keep Sabbath. Uh, and we just want to avoid making that mistake and thinking that we have to live by both covenants. Um, no doubt, what God did for the children of Israel in the wilderness may be the greatest miracle. Maybe the greatest of all the miracles. Maybe it's a better, greater miracle than the Red Sea. It's for 40 years. They did not faint. Their sandals did not wear out. Their clothing did not wear out. Their bodies did not wear out. You know, Moses was 80 years old when he crossed the Red Sea. And, when, and Caleb was, was 80 years and, and Joshua was old and their eyes did not dim. Their, their bodies remained strong and healthy. And, um, you know, we tend to take that part of it for granted. But what a grace, what a mercy, what a powerful demonstration 
of the Lord my healer, when He could sustain me day in and day out for generations. Um, that's a tremendous testimony to what he did. And also notice that part of that context is what he will not do. He says, I won't put the diseases that I put on the Egyptians on you. Uh, in other words, he kind of makes it very clear that our physical well-being, our health, and all of those things are kind of at his discretion. And so... You know, all the more reason to walk before the Lord with integrity. All the more reason to walk in faith. Uh, does anybody else want to speak to that or any follow-up to that? Uh, yes, Pastor. Um, uh, also, if we are going to link um, the verse 26 and um, take it for as, as it is for um, our Christian walk today, and as some, as some in the faith um, ministry do, um, how is it that um, a, a person who doesn't live for the Lord, who was a sinner, died, died, will die from cancer, and also a person who is, of course, a child of God who served the Lord, die of cancer? What would you, what you know? How would they reconcile that? How would they? To consider those those two, what do they have to say about that? They being the ones who believe that health is a divine uh, obligation, is that is that who we're talking about? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I. Um, let's be very clear. <laughs> you've you've heard me many times speak against the health and wealth gospel and. I don't need to repeat those sermons in this class, but you know where I've been on this in the past. And I don't want to get confused. I don't want to confuse people by thinking that, or by people thinking that I am anti-prosperity or I'm anti-wealth or I'm anti-health. I believe we have the privilege of carrying every burden, every need that we have physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, I believe we have the right, I believe the privilege to come before the throne of grace in our time of need and ask for help, and I believe such help will be given. Now, contrary to that grace idea, these purveyors of the health and wealth gospel believe that there are ways that we can sort of obligate God, that God is somehow can somehow be trapped or forced by our uh, following of certain formulas or quoting of certain verses. Some of this manifests, you'll see these books that come out, you know, the 21 verses to pray to be healed or the 21. And I'm not saying all of that is bad. I'm just saying that some people think there's a way, a secret, or there's some sort of formula by which we can sort of obtain a favor from God. Um, some people will just, you know, some people, I had one person, and I know we're getting a little off track, but this is your class and you ask. I had one person tell me when my wife was uh, going through, a, this is right after the church fire, and my, my wife was in ICU, and I had just had a very uh, personal and powerful encounter with demonic forces, and uh, I was really in a, in a tough state of mind, and one person, uh, I think they meant well, I think they believed it. They said, well, you know, Pastor, all you have to do is praise God in advance, and he has to do it. And I honestly, I, I came as close at that moment to losing my sanctification and putting my hands on someone, uh, because I was not in the place to hear such nonsense, such foolishness. I can't make God do anything by just, you know, I, you know, it, it was so stupid to me that I got angry. Um, so there, there is great potential for damage from these type of doctrines. We, we have got to treat the word of God uh, better than this. Uh, so to answer your question, I would say to anybody who thinks that merely reciting a verse is all they have to do, to obligate God, 
doesn't understand God very well, doesn't understand Scripture very well, and certainly doesn't understand the concept of grace. And I think sometimes we do overthink it. We do make it more complicated than we really need to. James tells us you have not because you ask not. Or when you ask, you ask seeking only to consume it on your own pleasure and not for the benefit of the kingdom and not for the benefit uh, of the glory of God and not for the benefit of the person you're praying for. So I think we really have overthought this. We've written so much about it. We've produced so much theology on it that we've made, we've obscured the simple truth of it by just putting all of this weirdness around it. So for me, it simply boils down to this. If I'm sick, I ask God for help. If I'm hurting, I ask God for help. If someone I love is sick, if someone in the congregation is sick, if someone is dying, I pray and I ask God for mercy and I ask God for grace. And sometimes he answers the prayer that I pray and heals them. And sometimes in his wisdom, in his glory, in his supreme knowledge of all that is good, he does not. And I struggle to really tell you that I, can, that I know the difference. I don't always know why he answers the way he answers. But I do know that he answers. And I can sit here and testify to many, many healings in my ministry, in my family. And I can also sit here and testify that I have prayed for people and they have perished anyway. And I have prayed for people and the sickness has endured. And I have prayed. I've been praying for my father for, what are we at now, 21 years to be healed of his blindness. And he hasn't been. And I don't understand. I I've quoted the scriptures. I've gone through all of the different permutations of how and why to pray. And there isn't any difference in the way I've prayed for him than I've prayed for others who have been healed. There are mysteries here. There's graces here at work. There's God's divine purposes at work. He invites us into the covenant. He invites us to make our wishes and requests and desires known unto him he answers the ones that are in agreement with his will. He gives us strength to bear the ones that aren't. And I don't know that I can take it much further than that, but I would warn you that anybody that tells you or tries to sell you something or tries to indoctrinate you into their program with a guarantee that if you do it their way, you'll get everything you ask for is a liar and a deceiver and a thief. And I have counseled you in the past, and I will continue to counsel you to stay clear of such. They have nothing. They do not have your best interest at heart. They seek only to glorify themselves. They seek only uh, what gain they can get out of a reputation uh, of whatever, a healing ministry or whatever they want to call themselves. I, I don't know that the Bible recognized the ministry of a healing ministry. I think the Bible incorporates healing as part of the overall ministry of God's servants. And anyone who tells you that they have a gift of healing, you know what I tell them, you've heard me say it. If you have the gift of healing, you have a moral obligation to go to the very nearest hospice and the very nearest hospital and the very nearest emergency room, and the nearest walk-in clinic, because if you really do have the power to heal people and you are not healing people, you are, in, <laughs> you are a very cold and cruel and harsh person. So it's not, I believe in healing, I pray for healing, I'm thankful for it. God has healed me. I can't even begin to tell you. I wish I had time to tell you all the times that God has healed me, uh, that God has healed people I care about. But I can also point out that there's things he hasn't healed, even though the way I prayed for the ones he did heal and the way I prayed for the ones he didn't heal were the same prayers, offered with the same faith and the same humility. So um, I know there are people who claim to, to have figured it out. I 
haven't except to say this. He is my Jehovah Rapha. The Lord is my healer. And he will be my healer even on the day that I die. I will still call him my healer because healing is so much more than just uh, taking away a physical infirmity or, or some sort of pain. I don't know if that's helpful. I don't know if I've made it clearer or muddied the water a little bit, but that's the best I can offer on the subject. Anybody else have a thought there or want to speak to that? Uh, yes, Bishop. Um, one of the things that has helped me when it comes to those different comforts, either or not healed, when I pray, I look at um, the the book of Hebrews and even the early church, and, and, and you notice, if you observe the scriptures, you notice that there are times uh, in that, what they call it, the roll call of the heroes, that book. If you notice mm-hmm. in, that, in that chapter, that there were some that was delivered from whatever they had, and some some weren't delivered. But the scripture That's tells true. us that they, that they all died in faith, having obtained, I think, the promise or something like that. I hope I'm not misquoting the scripture. So so it's, it's a matter of, I believe, oh, God wants to deal with, the, the, and I'm talking about Christians now, you know. Oh, God wants to deal with us and what he wants to bring us to, and there are times when things, when he works out, I believe, things in our lives to, to, to bring something, to show, bring a testimony to us, to others. So some will be delivered. Some were delivered in the book of Hebrews. Some were delivered. But yet they hold. God in faith. And why? Yeah. And it says, I believe it says there, having chosen something better, right? They, yes. They might have, they might have obtained deliverance. But they preferred what God was offering to what the world was offering. And Pastor, you probably understand this pretty well. I, 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 you know, our our lives have probably been touched by this, maybe more so than others on this call. Although I think everyone's been touched at some point with this. But you know, over the past two and a half years, I've I can't even. I think we counted. We I think we stopped stopped counting at thirteen or fourteen or fifteen or sixteen. So, some ridiculous number of funerals. I prayed for every one of them. I stood at their bedsides. I held their hands. I put my hand on their heads. I prayed. I prayed. I prayed. I prayed. I prayed at night. I prayed while I was driving around at work. I prayed and I called the scriptures and I called him by name and I called him the Lord, our healer. And there were times where it looked like the healing was coming and I rejoiced. And then there were times where it looked like there wasn't going to be a healing, and I wept. And, you know, that's the burden of ministry that comes with being a pastor. I'm not asking anyone to feel any sorry for me. I, I'm a, God's been good to me. But it's a burden you have to carry in ministry that you are going to be faced time and time and time again with amen, these circumstances. Amen. And if you don't have a rock-solid faith, if you don't believe with all of your heart that God is a healer, you're a hypocrite to go in there. You're a hypocrite to stand at a hospital bedside and lay your hands on somebody if you don't believe it. That's the way I feel about it. I don't know if you agree, but I, I, I can't pray prayers that I don't believe will be, will be answered. I'd rather just not pray. So every time I've prayed, I've prayed with sincerity and faith knowing who my God is, knowing what he's capable of doing, and having testimony of having seen him do it before, whether it's in the scriptures or in my own experiences in my life. And yet, as I said, whatever that number is, 15 times, 16 times, the healing has not come, or at least let me say it this way, the healing did not come in the way that I asked for it to come. I think it's cruel to to tell people to pray for healing if God doesn't heal. That's just mean. You'd, we'd be better off to tell them, nope, just accept the fact that you know you're sick and you're going to die and make your peace and go on your way. That that would be the right thing to do. 
if our God was not a healer. But our God is a healer. And the manifold wisdoms in which he makes these decisions and to the degree that our faith and our prayers can influence these decisions, to me is a bit of a mystery. But he tells us to pray. He tells us to lay hands on the sick. He tells us to call on his name. And so I'm just going to keep doing it and just keep believing. And he'll heal whom he heals. And he'll take whom he takes. And blessed be the name of the Lord. And I'm going to serve him because one day he won't heal me in the way that somebody will be praying for me to be healed. But I will still be whole because I will be in him and in his presence. So it's a mystery. I don't think there's any one sentence, one scripture, one verse answer to it. I think we've got to proceed in faith with humility, wholly dependent on the grace of God, the intercession of our high priest Jesus Christ, and a willingness to accept um, the outcome, knowing that we have done everything. Now, let me say that. If if you don't pray, then whatever happens is whatever happens. But if you pray and you pray in faith and you pray with sincerity and humility and fully and completely trusting God and his will be done, then I think even if it doesn't go the way you want it to, you can still say, blessed be the Lord, and you can still rejoice in a faction. Because you at least know that you did your part. We did all we could do. And we've left it into the hands of the Lord, and he's made whatever decision he's made. And any decision the Lord makes is a good decision. And any outcome that the Lord brings about is for the ultimate good of all his people. And sometimes you just have to take a little bit of the... uh, Take a little bit of the the hardship and the the difficulties of life and accept that it's all working out and it's all going to be okay. And I think that's about as far as I know to take this particular thought because anything beyond this, I think we're trespassing on holy ground. Anyone else want to speak to that? I think we could take Job's position, Pastor, in this. Even though he's claiming, it will I trust him? I think that's that. Well, I don't want to put it simple, but that's that's looking at it at the word of God. You know, even though he's claiming. So there are times when you pray. I believe, and it doesn't work out the way you pray, but it doesn't mean that God is still not God, right? But the scripture says, "He that comes to God must believe that he is God." He's God whether I am ill, and he's God whether I'm not ill. He's God, so I must trust him, right? When I come to that, I know, brother. He's God, so that's that's my position on the the whole thing. I've tried, you know, to pray for others too, like you do, and it didn't work. Out, but it didn't mean that God didn't hear the prayer. As a believer, I believe He did, and that He's still a healer, even though it didn't work my way. And when it works that way, he's still God. So I want to take I, I, <laughs> it, You know, and and the and I know we're out of time, so we'll we'll end it here. But we read these stories, and you say, why are these stories in the Bible? And Paul tells us in First Corinthians ten, these were written to us as examples. These are testimonies that were preserved. <laughs> so that we would have the example before us of what God is capable of doing in difficult situations and how sometimes our behavior can affect the outcome one way or the other and how some things God just decides he's going to do and he's going to do. And, you know, you mentioned Job, and that's a difficult story. There's not a, one, there's not a time that I read through it where I don't think God... I don't know if I could survive this. You know, I can sit here and say, though he slay me, yet I trust him. Yet if I'm the one that's there actually living this, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to give me faith if I'm ever in this situation. And um, I, my heart breaks for people who are suffering and dying and are losing loved ones and, and all that's gone on in this pandemic and what's happening in the war right now and all these other things. And I don't know that we can do anything else about it except pray and believe and trust God and hold on to his word. But I have every confidence, every assurance from these examples in the scriptures and the things I've been through in my own life. Yes, I will testify. He is Jehovah Rapha. He is the Lord who heals. And no one will convince me otherwise. I know he heals. I don't know why he heals some and not others, but I know he heals. Good night, everyone. We'll speak with you again next week. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.